A row has broken out in the United States between people with autism and the charity Autism Speaks. One of the charity's aims is to find a cure for autism, which some autistic people find offensive. And in a recent series of angry blogs, they say that the autism spectrum is something that is intrinsic to our personalities. We can no more separate the autistic part of ourselves than we could our gender or race. Well, many people may assume that there is a broad consensus of support for the approach and campaigns by the many charities both here and abroad that claim to represent disabled people. But is this the case? Do they really speak for the people they claim to represent? Should more disabled people work for the charities? And are they really interested in social inclusion and campaigning for the rights of disabled people? Or does their role as service providers mean that a conflict of interests inhibits their work? We'll be discussing all that in a moment, but one angry anti-autism speaks blogger in the States has already registered his protest by building a spoof website. Now, the charity has successfully had this website removed, but in 2001, in protest against the charity Leonard Cheshire, here, disability activist and artist Dr Paul Dark also built a spoof website. Um, Paul, you claimed your website gave a more realistic portrayal of what the charity does, and it was pretty scathing. What did you hope to achieve by doing that? Well, I suppose I, I hope to get those who donate money to realise what happens to their money. And so my website revealed the truth about where a lot of donations go. They tend not to go to service users. They tend not to even go to services. They tend to go towards uh, the corporation that the charity has become. They pay for senior managers to have benefits like uh, private medical insurance. They pay for trustees meetings. Trustees meetings were costing £20,000 a meeting, which is more than a service would ever get from the main headquarters. And equally, it tried to show the kind of the range of realities of corporation charities as they are now. So, for example, I said, you know, the charity says we need your money to help disabled people. And I pointed out, well, actually, you already give them nearly 80 to 90 million a year through your tax in the fees that you're paying through social services for residents in homes, for example, to be in those places. And isn't that the point, Paul, that we actually do give a lot of the time without questioning? Are you saying that the public should, should question their donations more? Oh, absolutely, I think. And that, that really was the key, is, is to find out, uh, you know, disabled people... I remember David Heavey wrote a book about, like, 15 years ago called The Creatures at the Time Forgot About Charities and Where Their Money Went. And it is, I think, people need to be educated so they can make better choices in what they do with their money. So if they really want to help individual disabled people in their daily lives find out a local charity find out a local organization that you can give money to and you can actually ally yourself with them locally and regionally to achieve far greater change than giving giving a penny to a large corporation charity but if i want to give to a large organization they do have multi-million pound uh, incomes then then surely i should be pleased if they're being run in a, a business-like manner and they're going to have certain layers of, of admin that's that's inevitable uh, no, not really, because often you're giving your money in order to make the lives of disabled people in relation to disability charities much better. And they tend not to. They tend to make the lives of the employees and the organisations better. They tend not to actually affect that much the lives of disabled people. So if you want to make uh, a big charity bigger and so that it can do more uh, kind of corporate Jobs like deliver services and local services, social services, employment services, 
that's all well and good, but you're not actually helping disabled people. I mean, that's quite a sweeping statement to say that these charities don't make the lives of disabled people better. I mean, do you have evidence of that? Uh, yes, I think uh, most... If if you tended to meet with the individuals in institutions, for example, their lives are pretty much the same as they have been for the last 20 years. You know, they may have a better bathroom now, but that's about it. They're still having to pay to use the transport to go out that most people in the local community think that they've bought for the service users. The service users have to pay out of their minuscule income that they're left with to hire and pay for the charges to go to local events in the town. So briefly, Paul, you've mentioned, in your opinion, you should go local rather than, than bigger and more national. What, what else would you change, briefly? Well, I think the thing to remember is, is about what charities articulate for publicly. Their campaigns, for example, have a gloss of equality, so they can, they can walk the walk, but they, or they can talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. In other words, what they tend to do is they promote equality as a guise when in fact they're promoting the charity so that the charity becomes what's important, not not the cause. And I, I think a good example is is to think about, say, Sainsbury's and the corner shop. And and Leonard Cheshire, Scope, all of those big charities are like Sainsbury's. They are forcing the little charities out of business. Well, we do have someone from Scope in a moment, so there are some good points there for us to discuss. Dr Paul Dark, thank you. So are the charities to which we donate doing a disservice to the very people they set out to help? Joining me is Brian Hilton, who's chair of the Greater Manchester Coalition of Disabled People, Andy Raquel, executive director of Scope, and Ian Duncan-Smith, who has set up the Centre for Social Justice. Ian Duncan-Smith, do you feel, that, like Paul, that charities speak, don't speak first and foremost for the people they're meant to represent? Well, I feel that um, there's a lot of truth in what he's just been saying. Uh, I, I feel a little bit in the middle on this one. We did a big report on this for Breakthrough Britain about what we thought the problems were for the uh, for charitable voluntary sector. Uh, and one of the big issues was the divide, growing divide, between a very small number of very large charities and then a lot of community-based uh, voluntary sector groups uh, and the way in which they approach their work and the closeness of the big charities to government, uh, the cost of running them, uh, and the opaque nature of trying to understand what goes on in those big charities. I'm not questioning that a number of the big charities do good work. I'm questioning that uh, it's difficult to know quite what that work is or what it costs quite often. And it does. He's, his comments, by the way, do reflect a sort of public concern. We did a poll and, and asked him a very specific question. If you had £200 to give... Uh, who would you give it to? And there was a range of everybody from the sort of chancellor right the way through local government, <laughs> charities, small groups, families. And only 4% opted for a national charity uh, that they know about through campaigning. Uh, they, they, they just didn't want to, whereas 31% picked local charity, but then went on to confess they didn't know who these charities were. OK, well, let's bring in Andy Raquel, because, Andy, you used to be with the British Council of Disabled People, and when you were there... Um, you accuse some of the biggest disability charities of hypocrisy and, and now you're actually with one of those, Scope, you're an executive director. Uh, some people say it's the uh, poacher turned gamekeeper. Is that fair? Um, absolutely. Um, and you're quite right. What, what Paul was saying um, is, is absolutely the way I would have described the big disability charities uh, as, as um, talking the talk but not walking the, the walk. Um, but Scope put its hands up and said, OK, we need to change the way we do things. Uh, Scope's mission, over the last four years, Scope has radically changed. 
uh, and its mission is now to be led by the views, experiences, expertise and leadership of disabled people. And that's involved a massive cultural change. Uh, the governance has had to be redone. We now have uh, three disabled people in, three, in the three key posts within the organisation. And how uh, many are in the organisation? I mean, what percentage of, of your workers are actually, or your employees are, are disabled within the charity, would you say? Um, four, four, four years ago, uh, we had 3.7%, which was sort of pretty average uh, for the sector. Uh, we're now in excess of 20% across an organisation of 3,500 employees. At the senior levels of the organisation, that exceeds 30%. Uh, and that's not that's only the start. We intend to go further. Brian Hilton, mm. that, that is one of the criticisms, isn't it, that, um, that these big charities don't actually employ uh, a, enough disabled people. Are the, the, is it the pool of workers out there with the relevant skills to, to head these and run these big charities? I think, well, 80% of their, their staff are not disabled people. And I think that's disgraceful for an organisation that says they represent disabled people and they're fighting for equality. So as the problem that I have with Scope and Leonard Cheshire and Menkapa is that for years they argued that disabled people didn't need rights while they were busy building up their portfolios of institutions uh, and they fund them by dropping little envelopes through our door saying, please help the spastics. Mm. But times have changed, and they've only changed because the economics have changed, that their way of fundraising is no longer valid. And what about people like Andy who say they are now changing it from within, Brian? Well, obviously, I don't know, there's no sense of irony from Scope when they talk about, right, it's now time to get equal. Well, it's always been time for equality, but they've just latched on like they always do. They've been living off our backs for far too long. <coughs> and I just don't think that they represent uh, disabled people. Andy, Scope, what about the point that you, that you are know. merely paying lip service to the idea of, of something like social inclusion, for example, because um, Scope still has its care homes, it has segregated schools. Is that something, you, you talked about a change in governance and what have you, is that something that's being re rethinking within scope oh absolutely in terms of in terms of our policy going forward we're now committed to uh, independent living inclusive education and the necessary service transformation to do that we do have a legacy of um, institutional provision uh, and, and clearly that's now inconsistent we recognize that is inconsistent with the message of equality and human rights uh, clearly that's not something that happens overnight, but it is something we are committed to change. Uh, the way in which we campaign, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're now going much more, much more radical in terms of our commitment to equality and human rights. Uh, early this week, I've been on the national media several times, uh, pushing the government on the issue of the UN Convention on the Rights oh, of Disabled People, uh, which is about the, the right not to live in an institution, uh, the right to attend mainstream education. Um, so, you know, okay, you know, the past is the past. Uh, and Scott recognises that and, and is now ready to move on. In Duncan Smith, uh, this was mentioned by, by Paul <coughs> Dart before, that the fact that many charities are now also service providers. Now, that puts them into a difficult situation sometimes, doesn't it? Would you like to see uh, a f the whole approach to funding differently? Well, we made a whole series of recommendations in our report about uh, uh, how you should open up uh, some government funding but loosen the ties that government 
has to dictate how, uh, how these uh, charities should go. In other words, you, know, you need to lengthen contract times for smaller charities. Uh, they're only at the moment restricted to one-year contracts, which is almost impossible to plan anything at all. Uh, government uh, likes to spend its money, but then dictate to the charities exactly how they should uh, use that money and how they should deliver the services. I think there's a huge element of a need uh, for, the, for the voluntary sector to be allowed uh, and to be enabled to be able to deliver services in their own way because they do it so much more effectively. But there is one point about the larger charity which is quite important and it's been touched on here but rather missed. Uh, you know, and the same goes for scope. I think that one of the big problems for them is that when confronted by difficulty about what they need to provide uh, in terms of, uh, of helping the community they're meant to be serving, too often uh, many of them have taken what I think is what probably the easier option, which is sliding back from actual service provision progressively more and more, and Scope were criticised for this uh, a couple of years ago quite heavily, uh, amongst others, and then moving to what is becoming a sort of uh, a, a lobby group, really, in a sense, constantly campaigning uh, and keeping themselves in the public eye by campaigning. But when you start to examine how much actual service delivery is on the ground, many of them are cutting back that service delivery and support and help uh, so that they can do the lobbying. And, and, and what you find with that is, therefore, it gets very sort of hyper-intensive around the Westminster area and uh, often huge, great lobbying on specific issues or larger general issues. But in terms of the real effect of good <clears throat> uh, voluntary sector work, the really effective work in the smaller community groups and charities is out about getting kids off drugs, it's about helping with family breakdown, helping disabled people uh, live lives in the community in a much more productive way. All of that stuff should not be forgotten and there are rich criticisms that lots of money is spent on headquarters and on salaries and there's a legitimate concern that uh, it's almost as though secondary sometimes that this service delivery becomes less and less the key. I think there is another problem as well in for example if you think about the laws that are being changed through the politicking that the, the charities are doing a good example is the recent Remploy issue now the large charities were all very supportive of the closure of Remploy it just so happens they also all run employment placement yeah. services now that's hypocrisy and one of the problems is 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 the media's failure the bbc all of them to actually articulate alternative views when it comes to charities they constantly buy into this this kind of politicking and and it's just criminal and the other point that i think is very important is about it's about the lottery. Now, I know uh, Scope have just got about four and a half million, over four million to do a, uh, some kind of project. Now, that is what is killing local small charities. Yep. If you're a small charity with £10,000 in the bank and you employ a part-timer for £5,000 and that's your turnover, that excludes you so, from lottery. But if you yeah. have £40 million in the bank, <coughs> like some of the large charities do, but because your turnover is £150 million, you can get four million lottery money. Yeah. That's ridiculous. And, and you're saying that from within scope? Yeah. Well, it's across the board. Actually, he's right about this. One of the big issues we raised in the report was the reserves that are held by charities, uh, totalling, I think the figure was, close on £35 billion pounds held in reserve. Now, one of the points we made is there ought to be a way of sharing some of those reserves with a small community group and charity because they're squeezed out of the fundraising by the very aggressive uh, tactics that are taken by the bigger charities. People get sort of tired of giving money eventually because they're bombarded by this. And in actual fact, the local community 
community groups desperate for money can't get hold of it. And so what we were suggesting was why don't the bigger charities and even the medium-sized charities holding, in some cases, quite significant reserves, let some of those reserves, even if they only released a tiny percentage, would put hundreds of millions of pounds back into voluntary sector groups in the community who do such great work. Or exclude them from the lottery. Can I, can I just uh, let, let Brian make a point here? I mean, talking a lot about big charities and, and maybe asking them to be radical or all charities, to take risks, how easy is that to do for a charity when there's such a lot at stake? Well, I think they've got a, a big U-turn to make, really, Scope and Mencap and Leonard Cheshire, etc. Because Andy was talking about uh, Scope wanting to fight for the right for disabled people not to live in institutions or to have uh, education in mainstream schools. But they actually run segregated yeah. education establishments. They have their own institutions. OK, and I, th- I think he, he did say, to be fair, that they are tr- trying to change that. But uh, can, there we can go. Can I just add one, one more little thing? Thank can you I very just much, add... Andy Raquel and Ian. Earlier this month on You and Yours, we discussed the role of disability charities and asked, amongst other things, how much they really speak for the people they claim to represent. We heard from disability activists who believe that the big charities are more interested in being businesses than in tackling disability politics. One of them, the artist and writer Dr Paul Dark, used to work for Leonard Cheshire disability. In 2001, he created a spoof website criticising the charity. Because it used a confusingly similar domain name to the real charity, it had to be taken down. On our programme, he told us some of the points it had made. My website revealed the truth about where a lot of donations go. They tend not to go to service users. They tend not to even go to services. They tend to go towards the corporation that the charity has become. They pay for senior managers to have benefits like uh, private medical insurance. They pay for trustees meetings. Trustees meetings were costing £20,000 a meeting, which is more than a service would ever get from the main headquarters. And equally, it tried to show the kind of the range of realities of corporation charities as they are now so for example i said you know the charity says we need your money to help disabled people and i pointed out well actually you already give them nearly 80 to 90 million a year through your tax in the fees that you're paying through social services for residents in homes for example to be in those places if you want to make uh, a big charity bigger and so that it can do more kind of corporate jobs like deliver services and local services, social services, employment services, that's all well and good, but you're not actually helping disabled people. I mean, that's quite a, a sweeping statement to say that these charities don't make the lives of disabled people better. I mean, do you have evidence of that? Uh, yes. I think uh, most... If if you tended to meet with the individuals in institutions, for example, their lives are pretty much the same as they have been for the last 20 years. Well, that was the disability activist Dr Paul Dark on the programme earlier this month. Brian Dutton is the Director General of Leonard Cheshire Disability and he wanted to reply to some of those points. What about Dr Dark's point there that people don't realise where their donations go, Brian, that they don't go into the services for the users, that they actually end up in things like private health care for senior managers? Look, we're a charity, but we run ourselves in a business-like way, and we do that so that every penny that is given to us as a donation isn't wasted by propping up the statutory care or by propping up the business. It goes to genuine charitable purposes. 96.7% of our income goes on delivering charitable objectives, 1% on communication about disability issues and campaigning for change, 
2% on raising voluntary income, 0.3% on governance. I mean, that was a point that I did make in the interview, that, you know, these big charities have multi-million pound incomes. I, I mean, I think, you know, it's £146 million pounds for Leonard Cheshire, and they obviously have to be run in a business-like way. Yeah. But his points about private health care for senior managers, is that true? <laughs> do, do your senior Not manager- a penny of our donations goes to private health care for senior managers. No, I can guarantee that. And what about this idea of, of spending £20,000 on trust trustees meetings. (laughs) Um, The trustees meetings are meetings of volunteer, unpaid trustees who give days, weeks, months of their time in the year and they're very considerable expertise and that's totally for free. The only costs for a trustees meeting are a sandwich lunch plus their travel expenses for those trustees who claim them and many of them don't. You do have a study weekend um, to discuss important strategic matters and, and review things. How is that paid for? We do have a study weekend, but that doesn't necessarily come out of the the voluntary income. That comes out of the operational income in running the whole business. And it certainly isn't £20,000. I wish it was. It would be a rather nice weekend. Now, one of the points that came out of the general discussion following this, Brian, was that there is a feeling amongst the public that they just don't understand how charities use their money. And this idea that, you know, how much you have to spend to generate income. For instance, how much does Leonard Cheshire spend on generating the voluntary income? We spend, on on a normal basis, about a third of the money we raise, and that's a pretty standard thing across the country. So if you're raising 15 million, you may have to spend three or four million pounds in order to raise that, because you have to, there's the mechanism, the people you have to employ to do it, and all the ask. So how frustrating is it for you, Brian, that despite spending (laughs) millions on your public image to show the sterling work that you do, that there is a lot of criticism out there of Leonard Cheshire from the disability action websites, uh, the like, from the very people that you say you're trying to help? Well, I think there is a minority who are still criticising us and who probably are still categorising us as we might have been, say, 20 years ago. But all I can tell you is that we're a very modern charity, that we have thousands of disabled people who work with us to do make sure that we're delivering what is needed and I hope that these other people will come to realise that we have changed and the world has changed and that we can do a lot more working together than sparring like this. I was talking to Brian Dutton who is Director General of Leonard Cheshire Disability. Ian Duncan Smith.